is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. All right. Welcome, guys, uh, to the Electile Dysfunction podcast again. I am Ashton Cohen, as you know. This is uh, Gabriella Hoffman. She is a conservative columnist, media strategist, and my uh, college classmate. So welcome to the show, Gabrielle. It's a pleasure to have you as our first guest. I am honored. What a privilege it is to be a first guest. And your show has been doing well. So congratulations on everything and welcome to political commentary. Thank you. No, it's it's cool. I mean, it's it's great that we've been able to 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 reconnect and you've been doing some great things. And I was actually unaware of it. Uh for you know, we 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 always follow each other on social media. Um, and then when I started this, we we got into a discussion and it's been amazing to see what you've been up to these last few years as well. Yeah, I tried to stay busy. I mean, because if you don't stay busy, you kind of go crazy with things and life throws you a lot of interesting curveballs. You move, you leave California, you start your own business. I kind of really didn't see myself. I mean, I I envisioned myself going into conservative commentary. I kind of had that goal, but I also didn't envision myself going into business. So that was kind of cool to have that kind of monkey wrench thrown my way in 2016. So it's it's an interesting journey. And I think it's a good time to be in political commentary for better or worse. Um, well, we certainly. have more material than ever, for sure. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just insane. Yeah, I remember back in our college days, when I was very political on campus with the conservative groups with YAF with college Republicans, I remember so many people would shrug off political activism to me. And they'd be like, No, I could never do what you're doing. I'm just content being mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. kind of on the sidelines, like I'm not really political. And I would hear this from friends who were on the center left and a little bit on the center right too. And now it's just like, I see a lot of people who were not politically activated are now so much. And I'm like, wow, 2016 really did a number to people um, for better or worse. And uh, it's a good thing for people to be kind of heightened aware in politics. And it also has some downsides too. I think when you see that everyone is political, everything is now political. And, mm-hmm. and that worries me a bit. No, for sure. I, it's, I, my experience was exactly the same, obviously. Um, we, with all my friends and everyone I knew in college, it was very much um, you know, it was sort of kind of like, you know, the political nerdy types would sort of get into politics and stuff like that. And most people just sort of wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to, and which I understand, you know, like if you're not something you're not passionate about, then, then that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, and then you flip to today and this wasn't that long ago, right? We were, uh, you know, we're talking about what, like the second, second, uh, term of Obama. So not, not yeah, exactly just before he history. was elected again. Yeah, not exactly ancient history. And um, what happened was now you're you're essentially forced to be political, right? So I have had friends who have told me, even even on the right, or people who are completely apolitical or uh, who couldn't care less, that they've been pressured. They had to put up like the black square. Remember the whole George Floyd thing? Mm-hmm. They will put the black square on Instagram. They they felt they had to because then other people would know some and say, "Why haven't you put the black square on?" You know, and and that would lead to uh, you know possible 
um, complications with work and all sorts of things. So that's, it's, it's insane. I mean, just like the, the, we're talking less than a decade here and how, how vastly different things have changed from where they were for right. many decades. Right. Right. Yeah. I remember when we were in college, I think you finished maybe a year after I did, I was maybe smart and I graduated in three years from UCSD. But when we first connected, I remember you being in student council. You were like one of the lone holdouts in student council who wasn't left, left leaning. I remember. And I was like, okay, we have to petition Ashton. Obviously he, he makes sense. And this was for like Israel BDS um, Mm -hmm. related stuff. And I remember you got so much pressure, but you and a few others were like our go-to people to sway to help defeat BDS. And that's how we connected many, many years ago. Gosh, it feels like a lifetime ago. But I remember like staying at student council meetings till midnight. It was crazy just what we would do, the lengths we would go to to stop BDS. That was the only thing that seemed to animate people at the time. Now everything animates people. But yeah, but, so that that was sort yeah. of my my first taste of uh, you know the political controversy and all that mm-hmm. because obviously um, I haven't really thought about this since since college. But you know, the give the audience some background. So we were um, UC San Diego tended to have I think well like the second strongest or the first I think the second strongest in the nation in terms of students for justice in Palestine, mm. and so they would constantly try to pass this thing called. Uh, BDS, the uh, divestment divestment sanctions. We were, I think, maybe number two or three. UCI was the one that was really. UCI was always number one. They were always like fucking crazy. And then this was like the this we were like a we were like a distance. Well, not even that distant, but we were second place. I think we were strong second place. I think even maybe even over Berkeley in that respect. And so, um, so they tried to they tried to pass this obviously, and and then they used a a picture of me in, in, uh, in garb that I bought from Dubai and, and basically try to position me as someone who made Muslims feel unsafe on campus, even though it wasn't even a Muslim outfit. And then they were using that as, as sort of a, a way to basically, uh, delegitimize me and then, you know, have the, the BDS proposal passed to basically get the school's completely divested from having any exposure to Israeli companies, whether it be in the Russell 2000 or their investment fund or endowment or whatever. And uh, it failed that year. And then after we graduated, it passed eventually. And then, yep. yeah, and, and it's, it's just been getting the entire sort of woke college agenda has spilled over, obviously, in, tour, in terms of the rest of the world. Yeah, uh, it's so scary. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And UCSD wasn't so political. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me going into activism in 2009, when we entered the school, um, Berkeley and UCLA were a lot more politically activated Mm -hmm. than UCSD. UCSD always had this reputation for being a sleepy campus. Like it's very political. It's San Diego's chill. Yeah. Like we have the beach, which I do miss. I do miss La Jolla. That was one really great draw to the university. And I mean, I I studied poli-sci at our alma mater and it wasn't so like, how would you say crazy compared to like some of the humanities and different majors? Like poli sci was pretty tame. You had your liberal mm-hmm. professors, of course, but yeah. it, it was pretty radical. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't as radical. It was like you you knew where the professors stood, and we did yeah. have some Republican leaning. Like there was one professor, I forget his name, and uh, he always said, like, if I lived in a red state, I would vote Democrat, and if I lived in a blue state, I would vote Republican. Peter Galderisi, that's who. That's who right. It was. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. And uh, he was an interesting guy. I didn't yeah, always yeah. agree with his viewpoints, but he he 
said he was Republican and California Republican can be very different from Mm -hmm. Republican elsewhere, but Mm -hmm. uh, you take it or leave it. But he was an interesting professor. I had a pro-Israel professor too for a history of the Middle East course. Um, He was pro-Israel, obviously it made sense to him. And I remember some of the students were very angry with what he had to say, but it was like in other departments and other majors, I felt like this um, kind of social justice, kind of leftist agenda was percolating, not so much poli-sci, but now poli-sci at UCSD is um, very different from what it was when we were at UCSD. And it used to be one of the top programs. I didn't realize this after yeah. the fact. I mean, although poli-sci is a uh, highly debatable um, major to have, it's not really good return on investment. But at the time, I saw, I think, from U.S. News and World Report that uh, our program was number three after like William and Mary and Stanford. So I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. uh, silly Berkeley and UCLA for not accepting me. I went to a better poli sci program anyway. <laughs> UCSD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, it was great for theoretical stuff. Some of it was like super easy to understand. Um, but the campus, like I said, um, really didn't have a political transformation. I think until I hosted that event with David Horowitz yeah. and then that got people really heightened to different things. But I would say after we graduated 2012, 2013, definitely with the new chancellor, I think it certainly has become far more political. I haven't seen what was happening during 2016 and 2020 elections, but I remember seeing the students were more activated. They were certainly more loud and vocal. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, while we didn't have enough resources, it was a little easier to be a conservative or someone who wasn't a Democrat on campus many years ago. Like I had my own obstacles, of course, like people would write nasty things, but never was I targeted. I just had professors or some administrators visit my house to see if I was okay after hosting David Horowitz. Mm-hmm. And my parents were really caught off guard by their visit. And they're like, did Gabriella do anything wrong? Like, no, 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 she she's doing fine. It was just so Orwellian. Like, why were they coming to my house? Yeah. Um, that's something I haven't really discussed, but um, my parents are that to me after the fact. And I was like, this is weird. Um, but I wasn't politically targeted in any sense, but if you're a conservative campus activist now, I think it's a little harder in some respects, but you have more resources. Now you can, um, lean on outside organizations to help you threaten to sue. If you're having your rights denied, you have a lot more support from the outside. So you can, I think it's good and bad in many respects. It's, it's worse because you could face penalties for hosting a speaker now, um, especially even on a public university, or you can be ostracized or have to worry about like your career. Now they comb through your tweets. Like, Oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't put out anything, anything salacious. I was pretty careful. I would tweet, you know, a lot in college, but I never like said anything defamatory or insulting because I don't think that's those thoughts. But now like if you're a college activist or you're going to become high profile, they'll comb through your tweets in college now and you're kind of screwed. Yep. And that worries me too. You, you didn't really see like a cancel culture so much. And I hate using that term because so many people blur the lines with that. Yeah, that's the question is if everyone has had said stupid shit, because social media was actually just starting to get going. Right. Basically, I remember it was like my sophomore year of high school, right? So it was at like 2007, mm-hmm. eight, right? Mm-hmm. And so- Thankfully, I, I mean, and I never, I didn't have a Twitter until basically, well, fairly recently, and so I'm, I'm glad about that because I would have said some, some really stupid shit. But that's what everyone says, right? I mean, that's what everyone says when they're younger. Um, they say stupid things. That's when you're young. Um, so the question is, if everyone has dirty laundry, does it even matter? Or because right now it just seems like there, there's, there is a, I don't even know if it's a double standard because you've seen like people like that Vogue uh, teen writer. Get, mm-hmm. get acts as well right and obviously she's a she's a left winger um 
so it's just like, is it just a situation where everybody uh, everybody can be a target or will it be a situation where because everyone has dirty laundry, no one cares anymore? Because I, I think we're still trying to figure that out. Especially right. if, you're, if you're younger than us, then yeah. you've been on social media for basically since you were like 13, right? So think about all the dumb things you've said throughout your life. And, uh, you know, now we're, we're, you know, looking over a decade of dumb things out in the public. So how does that, how does that resolve itself? I've tried not to say dumb things or anything that could get me in trouble. <laughs> um, cause I don't think those thoughts, I just think no. some people maybe due to their environment, maybe out of ignorance, they impulsively tweeted and they've had yeah. awakenings. I think most people are redeemable if they want to be redeemable. For sure. And remember, uh, it's only just dumb things. It's things that were completely reasonable at the time as well, which are now controversial, right? I mean, people forget like Obama wasn't even for gay marriage until 2012. That's right. Right. And like, and like a year, and I, I was in favor of gay marriage before he was. And, <laughs> and then like a year later, if you weren't in favor of gay marriage, then you're a Nazi. You know, it's just like the, the rules change like on the dime. So yeah, and, something and, you said was just reasonable is not anymore. And then how do you, how do you resolve that? I think they're kind of blurring the lines about what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think it goes to the larger conversation of, let's see, I think it it could go so much into freedom of association and, and freedom of thought. And it's not so much about saying crazy stuff. I think it's just the, when I think people are too afraid of hearing different viewpoints, let's say they delegitimize, let's say what Republicans say and conservatives say, and they say, well, if you agree with them on any notion, you essentially support national socialism of the Hitler Hitlerian vein, which is ludicrous um, because you can't apply what that atrocious evil person did in Europe to mainstream Republican conservatism. Uh, would the left like us to say, hey, you guys are close to Stalin? Uh, ideologically, I don't think they would appreciate that. Um, although in some although, cases uh, you can make that argument, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, also I think with, with the whole... Uh... I always have an issue with the whole, the whole, first of all, of course, it's discussing the whole Nazi thing, but you know, it's always funny how we consider that we use a European paradigm, which didn't exist in America and then apply it here. Right. right. So, so like what the, the Nazi party was, was the national socialist party, as we know, right. It was government control of the major industries, you know, uh, you, you know, Hitler was a vegetarian, like, <laughs> I mean, he was pro abortion, right. He was right. pro government control. He was pro censorship. He was, I mean, racist. Was, I mean, too. yeah, he, he, he was racist. <laughs> he, he um, basically identified everybody by their immutable characteristics and put mm-hmm. them on the hierarchy who does that sound like uh, that doesn't sound like uh you know like madisonian jeffersonian like small government philosophy right no like you know so if, if we want i only want to go down that angle with with other people because i think it's no you know i think it's unless you kill millions of jews i don't think you should be compared to hitler right or, or kill millions of people same but if and we also go that, that that angle it's like whoa it sounds a lot more like you guys than, than does like anyone else right Right. And also, I do want to be cautious not to say that every person on the left is comparable to Stalin, that that's not what I was saying. Um, And I also think you have to be careful to make comparisons, whether it's right or left, because Mm -hmm. I think it dehumanizes the victims of socialism and also Nazism, too, where if if everything is Nazi or everything is socialist or communist, you have to be careful because it dilutes Mm -hmm. um, kind of those attitudes and it dilutes real examples of it. So I think people in political discourse just 
oh, they love to do alarmism and we have to be a little careful. Yeah. Um, but I mean, they've used that Republicans are Nazis trope since I remember from college. I had a professor in um, making of the modern world who was born in China. And I remember him saying something to the effect of that evangelicals are very closely aligned with Hitler. And I was like, because they're socially conservative, pro-life, pro-family. Yeah. And I should have recorded that lecture because that yeah, could Hitler have gone viral pro-life. in today's. Yes, as we know. <laughs> Hitler was very pro-life. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember this professor saying this and I tweeted about this and I was like, crap, I should have had a video camera to film him. Mm-hmm. But I was also worried about like being ostracized and being right. um, castigated and potentially punished for doing that. Although in a public school setting, you're you're allowed to do it unless they say otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember hearing that Republicans are Nazis or conservatives are Nazis trope yeah. since college. Like it, yep. it's, it's an attire trope. And I think people and voters are hopefully seeing through it uh, independent of the 2020 results because people voted in president Biden. But I think you see a lot of new voters coming into the Republican party who are not traditionally thought of as Republicans because of seeing through kind of these talking points and seeing through these false characterizations. That's mm-hmm. why Hispanics are gravitating. A larger share of the black vote is starting to vote Republican, but certainly Hispanics, I would yeah. say. Um, we actually lost primarily with white men yeah, and white women. Right. That, that was the only that was the only demographic that uh, Trump did worsen was white men. Yes. Which is hilarious because that <laughs> completely destroys the narrative. That's why no one talks about it, right? No. I mean, he won Trump won that um was it Zapata County, which is like 90% Hispanic? Yes. Right? They used to vote and, Republic or Democrat, yeah. historically speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, so that was always sort of the golden goose, I think, for for the right is is why they haven't been able to at least get 40% of the Hispanic vote. It seems, it seems about that seems about pretty doable considering that it's a very hardworking demographic, family oriented, generally pro-life, you know. Pro-business. Sense, Pro business, pro small business, particularly, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, centered a lot, large part of their lives around faith. Um, so it's it's just it is interesting. So I I, I do think also uh, it's worth mentioning because we always hear we've been probably you've probably been hearing this your whole life too. Is like oh, you know, Texas is going to be blue. I've been hearing it for like twenty years. Texas is going to be blue. Uh, Florida is going to be blue. This is going to be blue. This is going to be blue, and. Uh, a couple of places, I, like Virginia seems to, to have become sort of blue, but that's not because of Hispanics, right? So I, I, I think people underestimate, they just think, oh, okay, so there's more minorities, they're all going to vote left. But it seems like um, Hispanics are always a little bit more conservative than the average white person wherever they are. Mm-hmm. So even in California, which is a democratic state, so you know, a, a Hispanic first generation American like me or like, or you know, second generation, they tend to be even when they're democratic, they tend to be a little bit more conservative than than your sort of white liberal, and they tend to vote, which makes sense, whatever the sort of um, the dominant political positions are in that state, right? So in in Texas, they tend to be more conservative. In California, they tend to be Democrat because white people are Democrat, but they seem to be a little bit more um, conservative than your average white liberal. For sure, especially on things like like some of this police stuff, right? The, the whole defund the police stuff, right? That that seems to be entirely a white liberal thing. That's why I think we Republicans almost won back the House this past year, actually, because you saw a lot of people who were not white very afraid of just mm. the lack of policing, the yeah. different attacks by BLM activists, um, just the violence that was 
you know, prevailing in different cities and that carries on now. I think cities are reporting lots of higher incidences of homicides, violent attacks, rapes, violence is on the rise in in different big cities. Mm -hmm. And um, that really did scare a lot of voters into almost giving Republicans control of the House. There's a lot of connection with that. Um, And and the fact that uh, basic support of policing is supported among Black voters, Hispanic voters, just about everyone, but except for maybe some of the white voters (laughs) that were voting for Biden, perhaps. Um, But basic policing is still supported because uh, kind of your only defense. Although I think um, the reason why we see a lot of private firearms ownership rising in the United States, we have 8 million new gun owners, yep, right. especially the biggest surge among black uh, yeah, so gun owners. 5%, I think we're, we're African-American of the first time gun owners. I don't know about that, but um, there was the biggest increase. It was 58% increase in black women. I think it was 45% of women. Female. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. It was 47% female. I think it was like 20% African-American. I think Mm -hmm. that was a stat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, from the National Shooting Sports Foundation. And people are seeing that, well, if police are being defunded or their budgets are being capped, um, who is going to protect them? So Mm -hmm. a firearm is kind of their last defense. And it's not, it doesn't mean that they're going to use it recklessly. I think that's a misnomer about firearms ownership. You buy the gun and you're gun crazy. No, Uh, you have to treat that weapon as a last resort tool. You're not going to be using it unless very, very necessary, or you really view that your life is under threat. You just have to be trained. You have to be prepared. And people want to take their safety into their own own hands, especially if police can't uh, police their neighborhoods. So that's largely contributed, I think, to um, Asian Americans, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans buying guns in droves. And we're going to see more of that, especially with demand for guns increasing. I, you know, I have to say something. It was just the traditionally one of the main categories I agreed with. I had sympathy for left on terms of positions was the issue of police reform, because I I've never been arrested, but I've never had I've never had good experiences with police, um, and I've probably had uh, you know double digit interactions, you know, mm. and so that was something that and and you know, good deal. My family are European. I've, I have uh, I have family members who are uh, in the police force in Europe, and you see them and you see how they interact and you see their sort of. Uh, Granted, you know, British cops, I don't think are a model for our nation. They're, they're, they're laughable sometimes uh, in terms of how weak and pathetic they are. But, um, but you, you see this, this general notion, I think, in Europe, and I think that it, it was a legitimate point, where these, they're more trained toward de- de-escalation. And, you know, coming from Los Angeles, LAPD obviously has one of the worst reputations, I think, uh, uh, maybe undeservedly so, but maybe deservedly so, uh, of any police force uh, in, in the United States. and you do see, you do have the sense of just leaning towards escalation of certain situations that didn't need to escalate. You know, with, with my interactions with police in the past as well, it was, um, it wasn't nice. It wasn't friendly. It wasn't, you know, it, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't cordial. I was like, you don't have to be like that. Right. So that was always something. And I always felt like there needs to be more training. I do feel like they're a bit too quick to pull the trigger sometimes. Oh, definitely. Uh, there are some. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, and also you saw that. Uh, who, who's that? That female cop. I forgot where it was. Where she she shot the guy and says so she saw it as tasers. Like, how do you not know that? Like, how, how can you not feel the difference yeah. between a taser and a gun? You've been in the police force for 20, 30 years. It's like that's. I mean, if you're not prepared for that, that's on you because like you should be able to 
to have that down. It's, you know, it's like being it's like being a surgeon, and then in the heat of the moment, you make this insane mistake. You know, like you cut the guy's heart open. It's like no, <laughs> like you need to do the work beforehand to make sure that when you're in that situation, you don't know do. So I, I had sympathy with him. The point is, of course, being the left, nothing's ever good enough. So they always have to push it to the the, the furthest extreme. So it went from okay, like you know, let's let's train cops more. Let's you know, let's be more sympathetic towards criminal justice reform. Let's um, you know, let let's definitely uh, you know, not everything has to be an escalation to defund the police. Get the fuck get out of them. You know, get them get rid of them all. It's like you guys can't just stay on a reasonable path. Like where even someone like you know, people who are on the center right or or conservative actually had had some um, agreement with you on this issue. And then you just have to go to the extreme. Like, oh, no, defund the police. You know, they do that with everything. Well, I mean, they they are in control now, so they feel that they yeah. have a mandate to to push that. Yeah. And also they laughed off Senator Tim Scott's plan, which seemed really That's reasonable right. in right. terms of addressing some of the needs, mm-hmm. encouraging necessary reforms without dispowering the police, right. um, bringing in some greater account- accountability with, with what can happen and possibly teaching a de-escalation more so. And I think um, some reforms have been done. I know that police now wear body cams and anytime they kind of go off, um, you can see now on footage, there was a case where a cop here in Virginia went crazy on a black gentleman who had a, he's a military guy and he has a concealed carry permit. He was yelling at him and ostracizing him. So we saw on camera, thankfully nothing beyond the yelling happened, Mm -hmm. but this cop just went crazy on this gentleman who was perfectly fine to carry a gun in his car. In Virginia, there are certain laws where you can carry your gun. Um, I'm not speaking exactly to the point, but you're allowed to carry in your car with certain stipulations, of course. So he was doing Mm -hmm. it and this cop just went bizarre on him and it was, it was bizarre. And and thankfully the, the recording from the, the camcorder or from the different cameras that they, they're now equipped with came out to be that this guy was in the wrong. Um, The police officer was in the wrong. So like certain improvements have been made now there's footage. You can't, really dispute what is on camera um, yep. if it's really loud and clear. So that's, a, I think, a good tool of accountability so far. And I, I like a lot of what Senator Tim Scott has proposed. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about fully revoking qualified immunity. Yeah, I don't um, think that's, that's a some, good idea. Yeah. Something, and maybe there's some merit to some of the arguments, but I'm a little worried, or I think Senator, Senator Tim Scott in, uh, instead said you could hold the different um, bureaus accountable, maybe the, mm-hmm. the offices versus the individual ones. So I'm not really an expert on that. I have libertarian we're like, yes, get rid of qualified immunity. Yeah. So, yeah, and for really me, I, I'm a little hesitant. Analysis at that point, even yeah. Really, right? There's so many people already don't want to be cops, and right. now you get rid of qualified immunity. It's like, okay, that's you know, now now you're now you're. Um, I can I, that's an argument I could I could see a little bit on the other side, but um, I think there are better ways to handle uh, making sure that that cops are are responsible, and, and most are, uh, but making sure that you know. I think Chris Rock had a pretty good, uh, pretty good analogy on it. He said, you know, some professions you can't have a bad apple. You know, you can't be like, you know, well, ninety percent of our pilots land. You know, like no, we have to have basically hundred percent or as close to as possible, right? So it's it's um, it, it's what has to be done for sure. But it's an interesting turn of events. Did you see that Bill De Blasio just put out a budget that actually increases policing yeah, increases, funding yeah. for policing, which yeah. is so funny to me because they he was all about defund the police. That's right giving concessions to 
Black Lives Matter activists and some of the more extreme elements. And now all of a sudden, because crime is spiking and that horrific shooting took place in Times Square, which is like supposed to be one of the safest places in New York City. You've gone to New York City. I've been to New York City countless times. That's like one of the supposed to be one of the safest areas in the city. And it makes you think like, can you go to New York now? Because crime is back to like the wow. 1970s yeah. and it doesn't seem safe to go there anymore with, with just the malaise that's in there and just the, the attitudes against policing happening in New York. And yeah, it's, it's just so interesting now that like some cities that were just like swearing off policing, right. swearing off, increasing their budget are now actually doing that. So mm-hmm. when reality hits, push comes to shove. For sure. I, I actually think it's, it, it's an interesting point worth mentioning because you we do see this sort of decay of some of our major cities and states, right? Right. Um, it's really sad too. Extremely unlivable, uh, failing in. Inter- oh, you left California. I'm. I'm. May very well leave uh, within a couple of years. <laughs> you, you won't know, regret it. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't think so. I. I mean, you're seeing everybody moving to Florida and Texas and Miami, taking all these entrepreneurs. Texas, Austin, taking different all these- states too. Carolinas. Yep. Yep. You can even yep. argue um, some of the deep stuff. Right, People are right, going yeah. to Tennessee too, actually. Tennessee yeah, yeah, right. has become very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, it, it's – I'm trying to – I know we, we've spoken about this a little bit in the past. Is like what are the solutions because there's so much wrong. But if you take a say like like let's say LA or, or California generally, um, let's stick with the major cities for a second and then we could go more macro. But so say like LA – where it's the median home price is, you know, over a million dollars in basically any area that anyone wants to live in. Um, you're looking at a DA who's basically this Gascon guy, basically. Um, I don't, I'm not gonna say he's pro criminal, but it's, you know, some people would say. I mean, some of some of the victims of some of these crimes would say that this is this is one of the most radical DAs I've ever seen in my life. Um, mm-hmm. He gets rid of he, he gets rid of uh, enhancements for people who are in gangs. He, I mean, the entire the entire state is just uh, basically becoming so disgustingly soft on crime that even liberals are like, "This is ridiculous." Um, so you're seeing crime go up. You're seeing um, basically the homeless crisis, which is out of control. It used to be basically confined for those who who are familiar to Santa Monica, Monica, right? right? Yeah, and like Skid, like Skid Row, right? Right. Skid now, Row, now the Santa entire Monica. city is like Skid Row. Like it's the 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 disparagement. Uh, you know, I, they talk a lot about equity. So they've been very equitable in spreading out the misery throughout the entire city, and and so there's there's homeless encampments everywhere. There, I mean, there there are homeless encampments outside of my high school, every everywhere close to, to where I live. Um, you can't I've see seen that. some even in Anaheim and near the uh, yeah, Angels Ballpark. Yeah, I saw the footage. All, it's all over SoCal. It's particularly bad in LA and San Francisco. Um, on top of that, middle class people obviously can't afford a place to live. They can't pay rent. They can't buy a place. And then on top of that, now now the landlords are getting screwed as well because the whole COVID thing. Because it takes like two years to evict someone who wants to take advantage of the system, or maybe 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 um, look they they got. Uh, their paychecks were wiped out because of the policies instituted by the state, which made it basically impossible to do business and shut a bunch of business down. So their paychecks went off. So now landlords are on the hook and, and you can't even evict someone for two years. So now you have a mortgage to pay and now you're not collecting rent. Um, then you have the school situation. You have like LAUSD 50% basically, um, you know, can't do, can't 
get English at proficiency level, can't uh, attain proficiency at math or science. I think that's in the 70th percentile. Um, and it's just like, it's just bad all around. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, you, you go to third world countries and I've been to many, many of them. Um, and some of the cities in there are much cleaner than LA. And these are the environmentalists, right? They always tell us how much of environmentalists they are. And they are presiding over the most filthy cities in, in the Western world. Um, some of them, some of them are worse than second or third world. And it's like, what is the solution to all? It's such a mess. Uh, Newsom's being recalled. Um, Caitlyn Jenner is, is, uh, making some, some news for, for being one of the, I guess the, are there now 50 candidates? candidates. There's like yeah. over 50 candidates across every, uh, political yeah. specter. Yeah. But actually, um, I watched that interview with Hannity, which was interesting. Mm. Um, but I had a lot of questions for Caitlyn Jenner because I really liked the proposal about desalinization and also, which can be controversial, but I also appreciated the mention of forest management, mm-hmm. but he wasn't really clear. He kind of flipped, uh, she, excuse me, flipped yeah, she, yeah. So on, uh, Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> she <laughs> flipped on, uh, you know, um, Immigration wasn't really clear on that. Mm. And uh, let's see what else. Um, just some she other clarified, holes She it. clarified on Twitter. She, she did like, sure. she doubled up her stance and said, yeah, I'm against illegal immigration. I'm against sanctuary state. Um, yeah, I, it's. But also look, some polling yeah. came out and said that, um, particularly among Republicans, actually, she polled like almost bottom last, like 6%. I think Kevin oh, really? Falconer, former mayor of San Diego, mm-hmm. came out in first. Uh, and then the guy who wants, who has a bear that he's campaigning with John oh, Cox, yeah, who ran previously and actually lost really badly to Newsom, yeah. from what I remember, uh, from friends back there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So Kevin Falconer seems to be so far galvanizing a lot of the Republican votes. So it, it remains to be seen. Can celebrity really play a part in California again, like it did with Arnold? Arnold was just yeah. so universally well-liked That's before right. kind of his downfall. That's um, right. People were talking about changing the, the constitution for him to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, to, know, to run again. To run, yeah, yeah, to run, 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 run for president. Oh, yeah. Even that, too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember like I was 12 years old when the first recall happened and my parents were happy to recall Gray Davis. My dad actually had a very interesting personal interaction with Gray Davis. His bodyguard said he was a jerk. Mm-hmm. And this was, I think, when he was attorney. Uh, he was in some position before governor. I can't recall exactly what position he held, but um, his bodyguard was like threatening my dad at a construction site. And then Gray Davis came and was like, what's going on? And, da, da, da. and um, so Gray Davis, uh, just being fresh into his role, was doing a lot of stuff that people didn't like. And there was certainly an appetite for it. And I think I, I put this in an article recently that a Schwarzenegger was able to obviously galvanize a lot of the vote. And it had like a 62% turnout um, for the recall after it was placed on the ballot. So like 62% of registered voters turned out. That remains to be seen if that same energy is there. I don't recall if more people signed the recall ballot this time around than previously because it goes according to you need what is it like 10% of the 12%. previous number yeah, of people? 12%. Yeah, 12%. So yep. you so I, I have no doubt it's probably more people signed this petition this go around than they yeah. did previously. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Um tw- yeah, and interestingly enough, they they met the 12% threshold, but that was after they eliminated 20% of the signatures for failing mm-hmm. to uh meet the signature verification requirements, which which we're also we're always told that uh you know voter ID is Jim Crow, right? So it's right. very funny that uh when it suits them, they're willing to get rid of one fifth of the signatures. 
<laughs> to recall crazy. Yeah. Yeah, but they were still thankfully able to get 200,000 votes. They still because they got they so many. Yeah, they got so, yeah. they got so many votes. It didn't matter at the end. Yeah, it's so I, what do you think? I, you know, it's not, only, it's not only California, although California is the poster child for it. Uh, what do you think is is the solution for any of it? Because I don't even see. I hate being the guy who's like, "Oh no, everything is screwed. Uh, there's no way out of it." The you have to be cautiously so optimistic. The, mm-hmm. the problems are so immense, um, where you even have Democrats leaving the state, and mm-hmm. that's another problem because some people are like places like Idaho are worried that they're going to be voting the same exact way. Same in both Idaho, Montana, places like Idaho and stuff. You know, it's like how could you leave a place that went to shit? And then you're going to go to another place that's well-run because it's well-run, because it's nice. And then you're going to vote the same exact policies that cause the other place to go to shit. Like, how, how does that – how can you even have that level of, like, cognitive distance? It doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't. And there's no way to penalize this legally because we don't want to be fascist or yeah, – Of course <laughs> not. Like, you know, they're allowed to but move. I think, we have free movement. Yeah, of course. And, and that should be welcome. And I would think they would move to the state and see, oh my gosh, this is what the big yeah. draw to the state mm-hmm. and change their voting habits. But people don't change their voting habits until they've been personally afflicted by the policies they support. Mm-hmm. Not saying you have to have anything bad happen to you, but if you, let's say, lose a substantial amount of your income yep. and you're voting Democrat, or in the case of the PRO Act or uh, AB5 in California, I've seen a lot of Democrats right. turn mm-hmm. on that issue alone, perhaps the party, or they're now independent. But I've seen plenty of Democrats threaten to vote for Republicans nationally because Democrats are now pushing AB5's uh, federal component, the PRO Act, um, because they, Explain they're- Explain what that is for the audience. Yeah, yeah. So basically, this is one of the biggest labor laws to be deliberated in the United States. So what it would essentially do, it contains an ABC component which would make it a lot harder for people to be independent contractors versus employees. I'm not going to go into the weeds of employment law. I'm not an expert on employment law by any means, but basic understanding to, to make it digestible for the wider public, because it is very convoluted. They mm-hmm. keep it on purpose like that. They yeah. want to make it difficult for you to understand, yeah. of course. But um, essentially, it would upend a lot of the economy. It would misclassify people, which they're claiming that this bill would rectify, that it would stop yeah. misclassification. Yeah. Uber and Lyft are so exploitative. Yeah. And different companies are exploiting people who work on a contractor basis. That's right. But it would just, um, it would do so much more than that. And I think it would displace a lot of people from the economy. It would destroy right to work. Mm -hmm. Um, It would basically put people into collective bargaining arrangements they don't want. And when you're forced to go into that against your will, the unions are going to have all your information on your Mm -hmm. private information, your address, your phone number, how you vote, and they'll use it to retaliate Mm -hmm. against you. And it contains a lot, a lot of, a lot of problematic things. And it goes against the very instance of what free enterprise or what right. some semblance of free enterprise is supposed to be. Not to, to mention, because- by the way, the burden it puts on small businesses yes. who actually have these independent contractors, right? So there, these yep. independent contractors are truly independent, right? They can come to work whenever they want. They can put in hours whenever they want. Yep. They can, they can work on their own time. No one, you know, they don't, it's, they're not accountable to a boss the way you are. Say if you work at a law firm, whatever it is, you come in, you do your work, whatever, you, you know, you go. Obviously um, follow guidelines, of course. <laughs> right, right, of course. Um, but, but you are truly independent, right? You make your own right. hours. You don't get benefits. And, exactly. And so, and so making the small businesses now treat them as employees, even though, they're not. They, that's the whole point of being independent contractors. That you have all this flexibility mm-hmm. in terms of when you could come in, when you could go, what, what how many you, contracts you can have. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, 
is is just disastrous, right? So so how many small businesses are going to be like, you know what, I, I just can't afford to provide you with all the requirements that are going to come onto me treating you as an employee. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you can't you can't work here. It's kind of like the minimum wage debate when right. you. I think, you know, companies should be able to determine their own minimum wage. I don't think government should come in and dictate. Um, But if you're being pressured by the government to do it, you're going to see a lot of loss of revenue. You're going to have to shrink your workforce. You're going to have to have fewer paid hours of employees. We see this in, I think it was in San Francisco when they instituted the minimum wage, Subway and some other, uh, I would say, franchises had to cut back worker hours. They had Mm -hmm. to do all these different accommodations and they lost revenue and yep. people lost their livelihoods. So it's kind of like that um, angle where this At actually- time we're helped. going through automation, by the way. Yes, Especially yes. Especially on the lower end. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, somewhat related because franchisees are actually going to be impacted by the PRO Act too. I think people don't understand that. Um, I think if, and correct me if I'm incorrect, you may know this from the legal side, uh, but uh, someone who's a franchisee, I think is, uh, it could be, I think they are in contractor arrangements with with uh, Subway or, or some sort mm-hmm. of uh, bigger company. So so they own the franchise, uh, but they're still working with um, the, the corporation or the main hub or s- someone high up in, in Subway. I have to research this a bit more, but even franchisees are having to worry about the PRO Act. Um, self-employed people like myself have to worry because they just want to find more ways to tax us. We already pay self-employment tax. It's 15%. Mm -hmm. Uh, We already pay income tax. But I think in their mind, they're like, well, these people don't pay enough. And I'm like, well, we already pay enough. What are you talking about? Like, are you paying your share of taxes? Like what's going on? And, And I think they dislike the fact that we're kind of this um, uncontrollable segment of the economy. People are gravitating to this naturally they love doing this. They get freedom to do this. And, and when you have the freedom to, co- to control your work output, you don't want government coming in and telling you what you can and cannot do. You don't want to listen to government. Obviously, you abide by the rules that are out there, basic rules. We can, we can comply with basic rules. But if you have government deciding whether you're an employee or not, people are going to be like, I left my nine to five job for this very reason, because I didn't like my boss. I didn't like my workspace. I didn't like this circumstance. I didn't like being told what to do. I wanted to do things on my own terms. So people don't like being told what to do still in this country. And when it's excessive, especially, and yeah, California was kind of this, I think California in general, which is so sad because I loved growing up there. I loved being born and raised there. My parents settled in California after fleeing the Soviet Union. It was supposed mm-hmm. to be the promised land yeah. for them. They were supposed to enjoy all these different opportunities. And then the, the beginning they did, they loved it. And it was yeah. great until it started to turn politically. I think after Arnold left, you saw the signs of it. And I would say even after Pete Wilson, you were starting to see the transformation mm-hmm. of it. There was never really a Republican hold in Sacramento either. The state legislature has primarily, except for like three or four instances, always been in primarily Democrat control and lately Democrat supermajority. So California, has had some instances of conservatism. You had the governance, obviously, of Ronald Reagan when he was governor, and then Duke Majin and Pete Wilson and a few others, Arnold too, who wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but but there were only very few Republicans. So it's it's always been kind of a left-leaning state. And it's like a petri dish for really bad policy where they spread it all across the country into the different laboratories of democracy right. and different state legislatures. Mm-hmm. And the model for our country, as, as Biden said. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He he wants Cali- or California to be the model for every single state, which yeah. is very uh, that's an equitable thing, by the way. <laughs> you know, is, oh my is, gosh, is for everyone to be like that, right? That's they're all about equity. So that's spreading spreading the know, miserable the misery equitable. equitable. Yeah, and it, you know, California used to be a state to emulate in the eighties, definitely in the nineties for sure. But we don't want to emulate California now, and, and this. This is hurtful. Yeah. My parents came here from uh, like yours. They were immigrants. Uh, my mom is obviously from Iran. My father from England, and that's where he came. He came. Everyone wanted to come to California. It's yeah, it was a right? promising place. It's beautiful. It's it was coming up. Real estate was affordable. Great for immigrants. Were, yeah, it was great. Excellent for immigrants. It was it was a, a state really on the rise mm-hmm. in every in every way. Uh, and and now, you know. It just lost its first congressional seat for the first time ever because of how yes, many people left. Yes, since becoming a state. people this year alone have left. I think the net the net outflow was a million over the decade. So oh that's gosh, how we yeah. lost our one congressional seat because you have to lose about 700,000 to lose one. Mm-hmm. So we hit about a million. So it's – and who, who are the people leaving, right? It's uh, – Business well, owners. It's business – it's it's a lot – it's the – it's oftentimes the – Upper middle class and wealthy, you can afford to leave, but they're not the super wealthy like the Zuckerberg wealthy, where they can have right. like like a private fortress around their house and bodyguards <laughs> and all that, where it doesn't matter what their what the policy to the state are because they're protected. So it's like the people below that, the people who are like you know in the two million dollar house, right? Not the not in the forty million dollar uh, fortress, right? And then it's it's middle class, it's upper middle class people who can afford to leave, oftentimes. And uh, who, who's left? The fortress rich and, and the very poor and the illegal aliens who are coming in at, at a rate basically not seen in 20 years, thanks to the uh, repudiation of the Trump policies in, in immigration. So now they're all coming in. And it's like, what the hell are you going to be doing with these people exactly who are coming from third world countries who have horrible education systems, right? It's not their fault that they, they grew up in, in these. Uh, horrible environments of course but you know if you're a dude from with a fifth grade education what are you going to be doing in a country that's increasingly being automated especially at the low end like are we going to make these people aeronautical engineers i mean we make them heart surgeons what are we going to do with someone with a fifth or sixth grade education who, who barely knows english if that i understand what 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 the, what the solution is you know, although, you know, they always talk about, oh, we need to be more like like Scandinavia. Like, have you seen Norway's immigration policy? Mm-hmm. Have you seen the the president of Denmark has a immigration policy that makes Trump look soft? You know what I mean? Have you seen like how Europe have you seen Australia's immigration policy? Like if you're if you don't have a, a high skill, if you don't have a a great educational background, you're a mathematician, something of that nature, someone who can contribute from day one, you're not coming in. That's how they're able to have a social welfare state is because they take people from Kazakhstan and India and all these places who are highly educated, highly skilled, can contribute from day one. And that and that helps, you know, if you if you want that social welfare policy, which we can debate about that, it's a separate debate and it's a reasonable debate to a certain extent, but you can't have that while bringing in people who again, through maybe no fault of their own, but can't contribute and certainly can't contribute in an age where everything's being automated, especially at the low end. Things in the middle end are being automated. You know, uh, we're, we're maybe a decade or two away, but for things at the high end as well, maybe somewhat uh, disrupted or more disrupted by automation. 
It's like, what the fuck are we going to do with these people? It's also, I mean, even if you disagree with illegal immigration, and I certainly do, I also can be, I think you can be sympathetic to their plight, understandably, but I think they're also just being exploited by the political Mm -hmm. left Mm -hmm. um, because they only see them as people who work meal jobs, which I think is horrible. I mean, my dad has, having worked in construction, I've met a lot of these people who come, Mm -hmm. some illegally, some through green cards, and most of them do want to aspire better. And I think they're not encouraged to assimilate. And my dad has tried to explain to some of them, you know, uh, being an immigrant himself, he said, it's much easier when you assimilate. Doesn't mean you're losing your culture. Doesn't mean you're losing this. And sometimes they want to work harder than even some native born Americans. I think that's something that I think we don't discuss often. And then, you know, all these different things about immigration with, with respect to that. But I think a lot of them are being led to believe they're going to come here for opportunities. And if they wake up to the fact that this political party is exploiting their plight yeah. and wanting to turn them into voters, I would hope they see through that and see see through those promises and those claims and reject that. Um, it, it will be interesting to see, I don't know if it's cataloged so far yet, if people who come here illegally, do they always vote Democrat? Do they eventually turn when they yeah, start to become? Children, yeah, it would be interesting to see how their children vote. Um, but yeah, of course they're being exploited and, 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 you know, they don't know any better because they're just coming to a foreign land where they don't know the laws. They don't know anything here. Right. This is, this is all brand new to them. And, you know, the, uh, Bernie Sanders used to be anti-illegal immigration precisely because <laughs> it lowers wages for the, um, bottom, what was a quintile, uh, of, of income and certainly the, the bottom two quintiles of income. Right. Uh, that's those are people who are most affected by illegal immigration. Reasonable position to have, right? You can you can have social welfare programs to a certain extent, and we could again we could, that's that's a reasonable debate both ways. But you know when you're driving you're driving people's wages down who need it, and in exchange you're bringing people in who are being ex- exploited. Who exactly is that helping? And not not to mention, of course, all the all the problems with. Uh, you know who who who's enriching themselves the most from all this is of course the cartels, which now drugs is only like a they're they're like a diversified company now right it used to be they make all their money from drugs now they make a substantial part from human smuggling and they're these are the most ruthless brutal people in the world these cartels they've taken mm-hmm. over even like the avocado industry they've fully diversified around because drugs isn't cutting it enough anymore uh, but human smuggling is very lucrative so you're enriching them they've already taken over all of Mexico like they. I don't know if you saw, but the uh, that Guzman, um, uh, Chapo? El Chapo's son. Remember when they captured El Chapo's mm-hmm. son a year or two ago, and they captured him, and then the Mexican government had to back down because the cartel members were basically about to blow up that entire city, Calisco, in uh, in the city of Sinaloa where he was based. So they captured him, and then they gave him up to the cartel because the cartel were about to go like full-blown al-qaeda on that city hmm. and i was like oh my god can you imagine how it's it, horrible it was one Certain thing, parts of- it was bad enough when the mexican officials were subject to bribery but now the rules have completely shifted and that was that was so emblematic of what's happened in mexico where no, no they're like the mexican government has to bribe the cartels to not destroy their own cities because the cartels have all the power now. So it's like even worse than just pure bribery now. And, and it's only getting worse and worse and worse. And obviously spilling over into the United States. Uh, these people have, by the way, some of these people have kids in the United States and they have properties in the United States, right? These cartel members as well. So it's, 
and no one's talking about this. And that, meanwhile, we're talking about Russia and, you know, uh, let, and let's be fair with the, the Bush administration spending all that blood and treasure in places like Iraq and in Afghanistan when we have these major problems on the southern border, right? And China, of course, as well. Um, I wouldn't say yeah. Russia is a pussycat in, in this either, um, but I oh, certainly – yeah, yeah. Not, I think yeah. people I mean, people forget the nexus power. between yeah, yeah people forget you know? that Russia works with China and Iran. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's a people forget. All right. So Russia has an economy smaller than Italy. Okay. This isn't like, you know, they're bad. They they are dubious characters who run that, you know, Putin and, and all his boys. Um they will stir shit. They always stir shit. But like, let's put them in proportion, right? They're they're smaller. Their economy is smaller than Italy, right? This is not. We have so many more problems, right? You can obviously uh, have a eye on them the entire time, as you should. But mm-hmm. everything's Russia. Oh, he's a Russian agent. He's a Russian agent. Oh, for Every, sure. They they use Russia now. as a cudgel. Yeah, I think unnecessarily. And this is coming from someone who's a very big Kremlin critic. And I think it's like the boy who cried wolf. And anytime you, you say, well, I dislike this person. They're a Russian agent. Russian I'm like, agent, well, yeah, yeah. are they, is there ver- verifiable proof? You can't say everyone is a Russian agent. They then there's the no Russian from Wisconsin, agent. Uh, Ron Johnson, a Russian agent. He's always been. Yeah, Ryan John- Williams called him a Russian agent. I saw that yesterday. Right? It's crazy. Senator Johnson has always been very against the, yeah, Senator Johnson has always been against the Kremlin. Um, he's always voted for sanctions. Too. Do you remember when uh, Mitt Romney said that Russia was the biggest? Russia is the biggest geopolitical political foe, threat. Yeah, and, and Obama laughed in his face. Mm-hmm. Right, and now, and by the way, there there were there were two sides of argument. Obama was a little bit correct in being like, "That's not really our number one problem." I, he didn't actually mention China though. That's that's where Obama got wrong, and and. Robbie's a little bit correct as well at the time, yeah. and still, right? They they are someone that, that you have to pay attention to, but now it's well, like it was, everything it was Obama's. Is well, it was yeah. Obama's administration that gave Russia more flexibility more to that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. to be a hegemonic hegemonic power in yep. Eastern Europe. And I have family in Lithuania, so for me, I'm concerned about Russia's aggression, obviously, because I have family that lives in Lithuania, and they hate Lithuania with a burning passion because it was the first to break away from the Soviet Union. And and yes, you. I think you can be concerned, but you. I think being paranoid because I think China is perhaps a little bit more of a bigger threat. I mean, it's we don't have like education centers from Russia here. Um, the different uh, facets of um, the CCP and different uh, institutions of higher learning are very big of concern. Um, Russia doesn't have that power. It doesn't wield that power. It, it abuses and it's problematic in different angles uh, with hacking and certain other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I think though you can be concerned, but you can't say everything is Russia, 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 because it really downplays. And, and also, yeah, like I said, Obama's administration opened the door to more Russian influence and Russia has always been meddling in elections. They're, they're known for doing this. Yeah, They've so been doing this for a long time. Yeah. yeah. They, they always stir the pot. Yeah, it's insane. Oh, let's um, let's finish up with with what's going on macro in terms of the, the nation. What do you think about the first hundred days of Biden's administration? Uh, of, yes, of, of the Biden administration. <laughs> oh boy. Well, I mean, I'm pr- 
pretty biased. I don't like the way that the country is going. And in the first 100 days, this is even faster than what Obama did in his first 100 days, from what I recall. And that seemed like a really bad agenda. And I mean, his administration across the eight years was pretty bad. But this especially just the rapid pace with which we we can see just the undoing of good policies from the past administration. Now we're starting to feel it. It's very problematic. And like I said, with the PRO Act, I mean, and just many other things that people said, well, no, 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 this will never happen. Some people on our side, I was like, yeah, if you were not to be in power, this is going to happen. And lo and behold, the product is now being seriously mold as a uh, policy item that they really want to pursue. Just all these different things. They have executive action on guns, executive action on this, canceling of the Keystone Pipeline, undoing secretarial orders that encourage energy independence, um, pushing you know, carbon free energy options, which they're not including nuclear and they're starting to swear off natural gas. Or now we're seeing actually climate envoy, John Kerry saying, well, actually pipelines are actually very, very renewable in terms of this and da, da, da. So it's like these people were encouraging the cancellation of the Keystone pipeline. They were encouraging a complete dissolution of reliance on fossil fuels by arbitrary deadlines. And now with all these different controversies and scandals and problems with the colonial pipeline hacking and just rising gas prices, they're now having to walk back and admit actually pipelines are good. So to me, it just seems all across the board, it just seems so overwhelming. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I did not think he would unite this country. We're very polarized as a nation, unfortunately. And there's no way that this guy who was not the friendliest person when he was a senator, he wasn't really a bridge builder so much. Um, So definitely not now. I don't see that. He hasn't really extended any invites to Republicans apart from some meetings in in his office. Half the time, right? Is he even like, like my, my question is always. He has to put a little bit. I mean, yesterday. He, he put a lid on different um, activities. Like he likes to call early lids, like yesterday when it was uh, this going on or that going on, or sometime this week, he called the lid at like three o'clock in the afternoon. Who does that? Yeah. It's irresponsible. It's you know, speaking of Russia, I don't know if you feel the same way, but do you remember? Well, we weren't born then, but if, if you're a, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you know the history right before, uh, right before Gorbachev, there were like a couple different, late soviet leaders they were like one and done you know like in like in college basketball they come in one year and they're done like they were oh, very short there's yuri yes. whatever and then there was uh the other dude and they both lasted for like one year they were they both came in they were like on their last candle you know and just senile and out of place and couldn't really control the country and it, it, it very much correlated with a general sort of uh, decay with what was happening in terms of the Soviet Union's strength and positioning and power. And you had these two old guys back to back who were half dead when they walked in and mm-hmm. then died. And then obviously Gorbachev came in, then it's, you know, it, it, it all unraveled uh, thanks to all the policies pushed by Reagan. But I, I, I just see such a, there are some parallels there. I swear. I mean, we, we have, we have someone who's just like, He's not even a young 80. You know, it'd be one thing if he was like a young, he's like, a, he's almost 80 and he's like an old 80, right? He's like, loses his train of thought consistently, has no idea what he's talking about, doesn't know where he is. And, you know, some sometimes you see people, occasionally I've met a few people who are like in their late 70s, early 80s. Um, they were, this is generally what happens. They're, they're really high IQ individuals. And then, you know, 
every every study shows obviously at 80 years old your cognitive functioning isn't the same as when you were in your 40s but they were so smart to begin with that like you know they lost a couple steps and and they're still okay you know they're still pretty sharp you know uh, they, they can still hold their own well you know so like Michael Jordan, you know, when he was 40 years old, right? He, he wasn't quite, he, he obviously couldn't put up like 60 points a game. He was still one of the best players in the world. He could still put up like 20 points a game, right? Biden was never like that, right? He was never considered a uh, intellectual, particularly not, not by anybody on the left. He was never considered like an intellectual thought leader. This isn't someone who had, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, I would say, IQ points to give up. And so now, you, you know, I'm trying not to be, but it's, it's really troubling, right? Cause I, I do respect my elders. So I don't like to make fun of um, someone's cognitive decline, but my elders don't run, you know, the, the largest economy in the world and aren't in charge of 350 million people. And so that bit's troubling. So I don't even know who's falling. So I, he obviously has a lot of the old Obama people. Uh, it's Obama's in. third term too. Yeah. It's Obama's third term. And Definitely. They, they seem to be making making a lot of the moves. Uh, we're seeing one of the most troubling things is in the inflation. I didn't think it'd get this bad, and you know, they're spending trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, and you see threatening tax lumber, hikes. Lumber going lumber's up like hundreds of percent. Copper's yep. up double digit, maybe I think even tr- almost triple digit percent. Gas is um, up twenty two percent. CPI is four percent. The CPI is kind of bullshit to begin with because that doesn't that doesn't include a lot of other things. So, you know tuition and healthcare costs and everything is like in a double digit percentage. You want to live in a, in a city that everyone wants to live in. They're going up 10, 15% a year and wages are, are flat and we're spending trillions and trillions more dollars and the dollars becoming more worthless. And that's one of the most troubling things of all, I think, in addition to the illegal immigration crisis, in addition to basically being such a weak person that you, you're seeing the and I think you'll see more of it. Unfortunately, the bad actors from around the world, they smell blood and water. They're going to take more advantage, right? I don't think it's a coincidence that Hamas, which was pretty silent during the Trump administration, is now emboldened after getting the, you know, uh, hundreds of millions or was it was it millions or did it reach a billion? I'm not sure. It's either hundreds of millions or, or I don't know the exact, at least a hundred million of, of Palestinian aid that they got on top of the fact they're trying to make nice oh. with Iran, even after we know that Iran uh, was right. cheating the entire time. And, you know, Zarif himself was basically admitting that he had no power to negotiate in that leaked interview. And um, that the that the mullahs in Iran were basically sabotaging any real relationship. So we were negotiating with nobody during the Iran deal, basically. There, there was, we were going to give them, billi- we were giving them billions of dollars, which Obama unfroze, and they never had any uh, inclination to actually follow through on anything. So, and who's, by the way, who's, who's supplying the rockets to Hamas is Iran, who, who, you know, is is now more emboldened, right? Because they they don't have uh, mm-hmm. a scary orange man in power anymore. They mm-hmm. have a a guy who's sort of um, not taken very seriously and is not there mentally half the time. So that's that's what concerns me the most, I think. Um, and I I was pretty, I was so you know I was, I, I think I was somewhat open minded, you know. I, I, I was curious. There was that, that sort of twenty percent chance that he would be sort of like the Bill Clinton triangulation approach, you know, of of sort of being more of a centrist, you know. Um, but then again, you know, Bill Clinton was also someone who was in his forties when he took over, had tons of energy, was on the ball, was was a workhorse, was you know a thousand times smarter than him. I don't think anyone disagrees with that, and. Is a very different situation. And so now you have this guy who's 
can't really do the job, I feel like. And the people around him who are obviously enacting the policies, uh, you know, it's been a very scary 100 days so far, worse than I thought it would be. Yeah, I think a lot of people weren't expecting it. And I wouldn't so much lean on his cognitive abilities because I think a lot of us fell into that trap. They're like, oh my God, he's so senile, he's this. And he was able to deceive people and win. So I don't want to really uh, play on that. And you do see some loose- It is getting worse and worse. It, it, I mean, we're only a hundred days in and it, it, he's already- It's Well, he has a lot of blunders worse. for sure, but you know, I don't want to be like- blunders though, I have to say it is. I don't know if he's trying to do some, I feel like some of it is deliberate maybe because of his age. (laughs) It could be. I mean, he was able to stay in his basement and essentially win campaign from the basement win because people were like, well, he's not tweeting mean stuff. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think people are now going to be like, maybe we didn't have to lean on that. We didn't have to go based on emotion, especially when you start to lose your livelihood and start to have to pay higher taxes. Um, but I think certainly, I mean, and you hear, you probably have heard this, but I've never heard uh, the reference of the full ticket when it comes to an administration. So no, they're now saying sure. Biden Harris administration. They never said Trump Pence administration. Yeah, they yeah, said yeah. the Trump administration. Right. So that, that kind of indicates to me Harris that times, remember, he has, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, on the campaign trail and even now. Yeah, even, even for sure. So, yeah. I think she certainly has a very active role in the presidency because she was talking to foreign dignitaries, doing a lot of stuff. And to me, this seems like his very, very open leftward pushes, probably at her nudging. Um, and he always was kind of a far left guy, too. He just was like, I'm very folksy. I'm a guy from Delaware. I ride trains, I ride Amtrak, et cetera. And uh, he was inappropriately, you know, hugging women. Do you and think he's far left, or do you think too. he's just someone? To me, I always found him as someone who doesn't really uh, have strong opinions about anything. He sort of goes with the flow of wherever the Democratic Party is at the time and sort of positions himself there. Sure, he's I malleable. Really, I, yeah, I don't really think he but he's always voted anything. far left. He, he's voted more far left than I think people give him credit yeah, for because I was researching a gun law which had pretty bipartisan support to protect gun manufacturers from being sued recklessly by frivolous actors. And it had 13 or so Democrat senators who were quite moderate for the time in early 2000s. And he voted against immunity for, for gun manufacturers while a good chunk of his party actually did support well, it. So this? to me, this was in 2005. Okay. For the protection of commerce and uh, the protection of lawful lawful commerce and arms act, mm-hmm. and you had a lot of Democrats who lost to Republicans in uh, the Dakotas, in uh, Arkansas, different states that are now really really red. They used to be represented by moderate Democrats. Um, to me, those were moderate Democrats, and right. Biden never really was a moderate Democrat. Like he would vote for pro Israel stuff, and sure he would throw the bone for some bipartisan measures. Well. He was, he was war stuff and, for yeah. sure, but he would. He he seems like a traditional Democrat. He was always pro credit car companies. He was he was there. Uh, he, he votes the party line, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. as it goes more far left, he he goes huge. along with it. Yeah, yeah. He, he also uh, people. He never was this, a moderate, to my mind. Oh, it was also two thousand five when he was the he was one of the main Democratic senators who voted for a bill which basically uh, made student loans almost impossible discharge. That's why student loans mm-hmm. debt can't be discharged like any other debt in bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. It was because of a bill that he supported. So yeah, lovely. He, yeah, he he supports uh, he supports whatever whatever I guess is in vogue or whatever is people mm-hmm. tell him to support. Does not really see a, a strong uh, ide- ideologue for sure. I think, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's def- definitely a uh, interesting hundred days in a in a very bad way. 
And, yeah, you would think it would uh, improve, but I don't I don't think so because I think they see the writing on the wall that 2022 could be a bloodbath for them, yep. politically speaking, not literally for those listening. Yep. Um, it, it could be very, very bad for Democrats. They're, the DCCC is already like seeing the warning signs. They're worried. I mean, Republicans will be very favorable with these new redistricting maps. A That's lot right. of favor census, for Republicans. Yep. The census added more seats for Republicans. Yep. yep. So the census and just... Just typically what traditional conventional wisdom holds about politics when the out of party power um, is right. able to contrast themselves mm-hmm. with the incumbent party. So Democrats are incumbent. Republicans are not incumbent. Um, traditionally, except for um, one time in the 1930s and then one of Bush's terms, um, it was only those instances where the party in power maintained their control over mm-hmm. uh, the different houses. But if traditional wisdom holds, Republicans should win. I don't know if they're going to win like they did by a very very big margin. They gained like 60 seats when it was the Tea Party wave. Yeah. Um, it could be maybe somewhere, I don't know how many seats we can flip. Um, I think there are like 25, 30 seats that are still swing districts that could go in Republicans' favor. Much. What do you think what do you think is the number one issue that they need to lead on? Because they're 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 oh useless gosh, so many. sometimes. But like what do you think what do you think is the most important issue that they need they need to lead on? I think there are a multitude of issues. I think um obviously contrasting this administration to be a check on Washington. I think that's a great way to frame stuff and be like, well, you see what's happening. Here's what we can do. Definitely. I think they should campaign against the PRO Act. Um, I think that's not going to go away, especially if they're unsuccessful um, because self-employed people are business owners too. And I think Republicans need to champion them a little more. I, I was glad to see when the it went for a House vote and sadly passed in the House, Republicans were almost universally unified against it. Five Republicans voted in favor of it, unfortunately. Um, but I think that issue is definitely a top one. I think school choice people see. Absolutely. I, I've always been, I mean, maybe because I was politically yoked from a really early age. Like I've always been skeptical of teachers unions. I remember they used to protest in my school district all the time. And uh, South Orange County is a very affluent area and the teachers were paid handsomely. I remember coming through some numbers recently. Teachers would make on average some 70 some odd thousand dollars. That's more than like a, a simple job in the mm-hmm. private sector in California. It's probably the so, best, by the way, probably the best thing that happened in in terms of COVID, in terms of exposing how insanely corrupt they are. Right. They if you didn't already know the children. Yeah. If you didn't already, like it, it just, the level of corruption, I mean, it, just in your face corruption, like not, yeah. not at all willing to go back to school, not, not being honest no. brokers in terms of trying to figure out how to educate these kids, how to reopen the schools, how to bring them back in. We, you know, my, my mass, like my last monologue, I, I discussed briefly about how, how behind the United States is and how backwards California is relative to the United States, 45, mm-hmm. fifth out of the 50 states in every major category. And they just don't care. They, they, they could care less about the, and this, you know, I went to a public school in LA. I went to the LAUSD system, um, incredibly corrupt system. Uh, the teachers, you literally couldn't get fired unless you sexually assaulted a, a student. Even then it was like, there was a chance you still keep your job. Like that's I've how heard horror was. stories they, of they LAUSD. Just, just, yeah. They, it's really they, bad. They filter you to somewhere else. They put you in like some room. Mm-hmm. And if you're unsafe around kids and then you still get your paycheck and you just show up to this stupid room all day and, and that's it. I mean, it is insanely disgusting corrupt. Like not only are they failing on science, math, history, teaching kids to hate their country, um, English, a, a, in every sort of, sort of uh, metric imaginable, they are failing. Not only also financial literacy, something I'm really big on. They'll teach you a thing about financial literacy in these, in these schools. No. 
there's really nothing uh, you'll you'll learn that America's founded on stolen lands. You know, that's and and that the the, uh, the founding fathers were racist, and that's about it. In California history, you can't learn about the mission system anymore. Hunapara Serra, I think. That's right. We actually learned that. Everything, yeah. Which, yeah, it's gone. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you have to, you can, you can explore the good things and the bad things. Of course. um, But they don't give a comprehensive view. Everything is bad, I think, which is, which is problematic. Um, And I remember like they didn't insert that. I mean, you learned about the different things, the problems, the conflicts, but it wasn't so. I would say elevated in the level it is now where well, it's, it's like California's lot, founding yeah. is horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah. So I think school choice, I mean, it's always been an issue that I wish had gone national beforehand. It works really well geographically, but, and people casually mention it, but I think school choice will certainly be an issue that will certainly be front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, lower taxes, the typical stuff, obviously, um, education reform all across the board, not just the choice, but repelling money like race. Uh, Hunter Biden and ATO on the whorehouse. Yeah, that would that'd be good. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think there's a multitude of issues. Um, yeah, it's just, they have to be smart and, uh, have a message be unified. And I think you can get some crossover votes. A lot of Democrats, maybe, maybe some, I would say more so independents and maybe some Democrats, some Biden voting Democrats who maybe have an awakening and realize like I was deceived on this platform and I'll vote for Republicans because at least I'll get to keep my livelihood or there'll be that check on Washington that we need. But yeah, certainly um, repelling the PRO Act, uh, school choice, um, combating spending, deficit debt, uh, high taxation, of course, um, border security certainly could be very um, palpable as an issue, but um, it just depends, you know, and in, in, in energy, I think energy security is extremely important too. Um, and, and keeping oil and gas and, and having an all of the above energy approach where we still emphasize the traditional and also embrace uh, means like geothermal energy and also nuclear, which what they're not embracing. 100%. Yeah. Nuclear is, is a huge old. one thing I just want to mention real fast. What about the being more aggressive in terms of the, the big tech censorship and things of that nature? That's interesting. Um I'm not sure what to make of that because I think Section 230 could possibly be updated. I don't know if I want to see it completely repealed because with a Democrat administration, I could see them using repealing Section 230 to Mm. to silence conservatives further. And that concerns me greatly. So maybe some improvements, um, fine tuning it a little bit, but completely removing it. I'm not sure I can support that. Yeah. So the Section 230. But I don't know how Republicans are going to campaign. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few different ways you can do it, right? There, there's there's the angle which uh, Clarence Thomas and Kennedy previously mentioned in a uh, majority opinion that basically insinuating these institutions like Facebook, Google, these are more like public utilities, right? And they need to be the the traditional argument that they're just private corporations that can do whatever they want doesn't quite fit. Right, and and there's been plenty of instances in Supreme Court jurisprudence where private corporations have been held to um, the the First Amendment standard, have been held to a Bill of Rights standard, and so that's one angle you can attack it. The two thirty angle, of course, if it's actually taken away, I do think, yeah, it, it would probably lead to more censorship. I think the angle that people have to play there is more threatening to go ahead with the two thirty. Then obviously these companies are going to hit with a barrage of lawsuits, tens of thousands of lawsuits, because how much copyright materials on Twitter and Facebook and all that, right? 
Uh, and then they're going to back off and be like, okay, no, no, no. We're, we're, okay, we promise we'll be we'll be neutral platforms now. So that's the other angle you could take with that. Um, and then there's obviously the antitrust angle, which I am I I'm still sort of debating that myself as to the, whether that's that's a way to go. I mean, I think for sure Google is the most concrete antitrust case since maybe Standard Oil. And I, I, I do think, I don't know, Facebook is a little bit more iffy, but I think Google is just a very clear cut one. Uh, you're talking about a, a entity that controls 90% of its market, you know, that that is the gateway to the internet that can uh, basically um, punish its rivals and, and downgrade them on the search results, right? Yelp has complained about this famously, uh, does that with travel as well, right? So it's, it's to me, the most clear cut antitrust since maybe standard oil. And so I know there's a, there's a case ongoing about that as well. So there's a few different angles to take, but it, it definitely needs to be resolved and it needs to be something I think they need to focus on because it's getting out of hand. You have these entities that are more powerful than almost every world government in human history. They control the flow of information around the world. They control the uh, public discourse. They can shift people's opinions based on what they show and what they downgrade and what they blacklist all over the world, not just the United States. They're unaccountable. And they act much more like the entities that were uh, hit with violations of, uh, of uh, basically the Bill of Rights, right? So there were there are many cases. Marsh versus Alabama is one of them. There's several others where basically these quasi-government actors – these private entities that were acting in the government capacity were held to a constitutional standard. And, we're, and the Supreme Court said, no, you guys are basically acting like a government. And, uh, you know, you, you can't deny some of their First Amendment protections, right? So I do think it needs to be discussed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what the solution is, but it needs to be come up with. Yeah, I'm not sure it's going to be a what level it's going to be a campaign issue, but certainly it'll be discussed. Um, that remains to be seen. I, I try to stay neutral on that because I can see arguments on both sides of that issue. And it's kind of like immunity for them um, because I can see it where if you don't have section 230, so let's say like I write for town hall and some people write crazy comments on the right. commenter section. Is town hall going to be held live? if that section 230 provision is revoked. So there's a lot of concerns like that. I think it would be prudent for companies to not is, suppress different views. Town, um, hall, town hall is a, is a, is a uh, I don't, would town hall fall under 230? Yeah, right? because, a, a private publication, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, the, if you run a blog, um, you could be held oh, liable. Town hall, town hall is a blog. Yeah, a website. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. okay, okay, I see, okay. So if you run a website or a blog and... People I thought they're more like a news news publication or something because they don't news have news publication, anything. yeah. Well, no. So if you're like the New York Times or something, and you you print something defamatory about somebody, you're you're not protected, right? You don't. I you think don't it get relates to the comment section. Um, if if people post like uh, spurry and not spurious, if they post like salacious stuff, um, threats or something, sure, sure, you sure. could be held liable if Section Two Thirty were to be revoked. Uh, I forget exactly what connection why that connection was drawn. But um, yeah, there's a lot of concerns, I think, on both ends. And I'm not sure right now debate is going to be had on it. I don't, I don't know if Democrats are going to 
sit down with Republicans to debate the merits, find a solution. Um, and I worry about government getting involved <laughs> in this. But the, the trust argument is interesting. So like I said, it remains to be seen. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, it's great, uh, great conversation. Thanks very much for ha- coming on. Yeah, thank you, Ashton. Thank you, Ashton, yeah. for uh, having me. It's a, a long, longer than I, I normally talk, but I'm happy to to talk about these issues with you. I wish you success with this podcast. I hope it gets good traction. So far, it seems to have worked on YouTube. But your subscriber number got over two thousand. Uh, I think we're approaching it. I I, I don't know. If yeah, I saw it, it yeah. grew quite a bit. How how did you do that? That's awesome. Um, just people found you? I, I think so. I I, I think awesome. maybe maybe on some of the videos. Uh, well, there's there's only been a couple so far. Yeah. So we, the, the first one got several thousand views. The second one got several mm-hmm. thousand. So I I think it's I don't know if we're you tapped into something. But, <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, definitely definitely appreciate you coming on. We'll uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on apple Podcasts, so we can keep delivering guys some great content thanks again and we will be back next week and probably sex robots we stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas and if you disagree with anything we talk about you are a racist and no better than hitler what let's get started